Let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and, and for the opportunity that we have all collectively to sit under your word. God, you know that um, I'm not up for such a task as this, and uh, I feel that, and I pray that you would strengthen me and uh, use these words, uh, God, as foolish as they may be, God, use them to speak to your people, teach us more about who you are, bring, a, bring us conviction and encouragement, God, help us to love you more. I pray that you would accomplish these things through your word this morning. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are uh, new or visiting, uh, my name is Daniel Savage, and I am not the pastor. Um, I am the youth pastor. And most of you could have guessed that probably. But um, I've been at at Christ's Covenant for four and a half years, and uh, we will be departing. Uh, this spring with a group of people from this church to plant a new church in Rollsville that Jack was just talking about. It's a very exciting thing. Um, It's very exciting that we are planting a new church and a new community. Um, And something that we have said from the beginning is that planting a new church is not like opening a new grocery store in Rollsville. Um, It is not a business endeavor. It's not something that we can plan our way through. Uh, It is a spiritual endeavor that comes with uh, spiritual warfare and opposition. Our desire is to plant a God-centered, gospel-preaching church that will outlast all of us in this room. And we desire to do this, to invest in the kingdom of God and, and to do something that is lasting and eternal. This is what we feel that God has called us to do as a church, but even even with a strong sense of calling, we still, and I think rightly so, feel that we are in over our heads in this endeavor. That that what we are attempting to do is bigger than than we are. That that that's why we've put together a, a prayer team. That's why we have had uh, prayer meetings, and that's why we will enter into it in the last part of this week a twenty four hour fast as a church. Because we want to seek God in this. We'll begin the fast this coming Friday. We'll fast from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, making it uh, roughly 24 hours. And we'll have a prayer meeting on Friday night from 7 um, to 8 p.m. We'll pray for about an hour together to initiate that. Um, and then we'll depart from here and go our own ways, fasting and praying until sundown the next day. And if you can't, Come to the meeting on Friday night. That doesn't mean you can't participate. We would encourage you, please, still pray with us and fast with us. But that's what we're going to be doing um, later this week. And so we thought as we approach this fast that we should think about fasting together, that we should examine the Word of God and try to answer some questions about fasting, like why do we fast? And what, is, what is the point of fasting? What are we trying to accomplish? Is it Is it really just this ultimate manipulation tool that we have with God, that if we all just stop eating, surely he'll do what we've asked him to do? What's our motivation in fasting? We're going to look uh, primarily this morning at Ezra chapter 8. So um, if you want to turn there, Ezra chapter 8. If 
let me fill you in on what is happening in the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is basically the, the story of how God fulfilled his promises to deliver his people from exile and rebuild the temple. Uh, so the people of Israel are uh, in exile. They had been captured because of their sin uh, by the Babylonians, and they had been carried off to another land. Um, Babylon, along the way, was conquered by Persia. And so now the Israelites are living in a foreign land under the foreign rule of foreign kings, and they're not able to worship in their temple. The temple has been destroyed, and God has promised them that he is going to send them back and one day rebuild the temple. Ezra isn't even um, a part of the story for the first six chapters, but the, the, the first six chapters are about how God is moving pagan kings to accomplish his purposes. In fact, in in chapter 1 of Ezra, you read the declaration that Cyrus makes. The declaration that Cyrus makes, declaring that he is going to finance the rebuilding of the temple, that he's going to send the exiles back to accomplish this great work. And it's clear that God is moving. As God promised, he is gathering the people back to the land Ezra comes into the story in chapter 7, and he is asked by King Artaxerxes to lead a group of Israelites back to Jerusalem. And we're told that the king offers him anything that he wants because the hand of God is on Ezra. So we jump into the story in chapter 8, verse 21. Ezra has gathered the people at a river, And they're preparing to leave on their journey, this group of people that he is going to lead back to the land. And we'll start reading in verse 21. It says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So this morning we want to learn from Ezra about fasting. We want to know how to fast and the reason to fast and the desired results of fasting. What do we expect to come from this? Look at uh, verse 21. It says that he proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey. This is the way that we too should fast. You see in the verse that Ezra led the people into fasting, and the point of the fast was to humble themselves before God. I would say, church, that the primary reason that we fast is to humble ourselves before God. Now, there's, there's a lot of other things that are associated with that and a lot of, um, a lot of different things that fro- flow from that humility or a lot of different causes for that humility. But primarily, when you, when you look at Scripture and you read about fasting, it flows from a humility before God. Fast, fasting is a declaration of dependence upon God. It's a way of showing your absolute need for Him. That's why... Fasting and prayer go together. Prayer, too, is a display of our, of our need for God. For when we, when we pray, we're ceasing to work and we're asking God to work 
on our behalf. I remember reading um, a book, a classic book on ministry called The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. And in that book, he describes some of his practices in ministry. And one of the things that he says is that he spends the first half of his day in prayer. I remember reading that and feeling a heap of conviction. Because here is this man who has the same occupation that I do. We're both professional ministers. We're paid by the church to minister to God's people. And he spends the first half of his day in prayer. I started to think. He immediately came to my mind the things that I couldn't accomplish in a day if I spent the first half in prayer. The phone calls I couldn't make. The emails I couldn't return. The planning I couldn't do. The studying that I couldn't do. And I understand that, that prayer is a significant part of what the minister is supposed to do. And in fact, in Acts, you read that, that they appointed deacons so that they might give themselves to prayer and to the word. But half your day? Imagine, church, the kind of faith that it requires to think that praying for half the day is as effective as the work that you could do. Prayer is a declaration also of dependence upon God, when you, when you stop and think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. Who, whose work is going to be more effective in ministry, God's work or mine? We work to produce results. Therefore, when we stop working to pray, we display to God that we believe that the results ultimately come from Him and not our own hands. In the same way, we eat for strength. Therefore, when we stop eating, we express to God that we know that our strength is insufficient. The natural strength that we could gain from food is not enough for the task that is in front of us. It's exactly what Ezra meant when he said that we humbled ourselves before our God. They were expressing to God that even when they were at full strength, they were not strong enough to resist the attack of their enemies. So they gave up their natural strength and made an entreaty for the divine strength and protection of God. You see that in the second part of the verse. It says that, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from Him a safe journey. They were expressing their great need for Him. They needed His protection. So why do we fast? In, this, in the case of this particular fast, we are expressing to God that we are unable to do the task that is in front of us in our own strength. We want to humble ourselves before God and express to Him and anyone else who hears of our fast that we are desperately in need of Him. Our own strength is insufficient. We we are like humble beggars with our heads bowed and our hands extended, asking God for something that we cannot obtain on our own. Now, you might say that that's a really tight connection with eating and food. So, What if you're unable to stop eating for health reasons or you're pregnant or nursing? Does that mean that you can't fast? Of course not. There are modified fasts. There are other things that you could give up like TV or entertainment. Other major time consumers. You're in the same way giving up something as a declaration to God that you are serious about pursuing Him. You're displaying your absolute desperation for His hand to move. And ultimately, you're displaying to Him that that you desire Him more than whatever it is that you decide to give up. So we fast as this declaration of our dependence. We fast to humble ourselves before God. 
Now, <clears throat> everything in, in this passage is going along really fine. Verse 21 until you get to verse 22, or at least that's the way it was in my preparation. In, in verse 21, everything is clear. I'm a very logical point A, B, C thinker. We want to humble ourselves before God that we might seek him for a safe journey. That's pretty straightforward. A plus B equals C. Then verse 22, it says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So what is Ezra doing? I mean, what was the re- Why did he declare the fast? Was it because he was embarrassed to go ask the king for help? That doesn't seem like a very godly reason to declare a fast. What does he mean? Well, look at why he was ashamed. It says that he was ashamed because he had already told the king that God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. In other words, Ezra had already told the king that God was big enough to protect them. He had already told the king that God was for them. And if God was for them, that they would be successful. Now, what is it going to communicate to the king if before they leave, after Ezra has made this great proclamation of who their God is and his power to protect them, if then Ezra comes in before they depart on their journey and says, you know, king, on second thought, since you're in such a generous mood, what if we took some soldiers and some horsemen along with us? I mean, you can't have too many soldiers and horsemen around. It's a really dangerous place out there. And what if God is not on the same page as us? Or what if we read this thing wrong? What if he's not actually able to protect us at all? If Ezra goes back in to ask the king for soldiers, where is he putting his trust? Now, we have to be careful here. Some would have you believe that the only way to express faith in God is through blind leaps of faith. And that's certainly not the case. If that was the case, then Ezra would have had to turn down all the help that the king has already given him. The king is financing this whole project. He, he puts decrees in place that are going to make everyone give to the temple to provide for sacrifices for God. So if, ever, if Ezra believes that any help from man is not of God, then he couldn't have accepted those things. So, so if that's true, if we can accept this money from the king, and if we can accept uh, the taxes that he's going to pull from the people to provide for these sacrifices, then why can't we ask for soldiers too? In every case, would it be wrong to accept the help of man? No. But Ezra had spoken the words of God to the king. And the word that God had spoken through Ezra was that God is for those who seek him. And his wrath is against those who forsake him. Ezra knew that God wanted to display to the king that his people trust in him for their protection. God had spoken through Ezra and it was clear to Ezra in this case that he needed to seek his help from God. That's why Ezra would have been ashamed to go back to the king because it would have been clear that Ezra was not listening to the very word that he had preached. No, God wanted Ezra to seek him for help and Ezra knew it. That's why he would have been ashamed because the king 
and Ezra and everyone else would have known that Ezra was not trusting in the promise that God had given. So what are the reasons that we would fast? We fast when we need to do something that we cannot do on our own. As an expression to God that we are desperately in need of Him. And if you, if you want to get technical, that would be all the time. In John chapter 15, it says that apart from God, we can do nothing. So how do we determine when we fast and when we don't fast? If we're in desperate need of God every day, should we fast every day? I hope not. What are some of these occasions that Scripture gives for fasting? Well, one of them is clearly a new endeavor for the kingdom or a new work of God. Look at, um, well, you don't have to look there. Let me read to you. Acts 13 Verses 2 and 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They are setting aside Saul and Barnabas for this new work, this new endeavor to reach new people. And they, they pause before they send them out to fast and to pray. Again, you see the same thing in Acts 14, 21 and 23. This is, at the end of this same journey, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That is what we want to do, church. It's a clear pattern of Scripture that when we start something new, when we, we try to start a new initiative in the name of God, that we should fast and pray, asking for His provision and protection in the process. What are the other reasons the Scripture gives for fasting? Seeking answers and direction from God. I think about when the apostles were trying to figure out who would replace Judas. They fasted and prayed. Another one, you see several times in Scripture, you even see it later in this book of Ezra in chapter 9, is the confession of and battling of sin. Ezra later in the same book, in fact in the next chapter, he gets word that the people have intermarried and that they are beginning to walk in idolatry and worshiping other gods. And he again goes into a fast that he might humble himself before God and confess the sins of the people. There's not a whole lot of personal application in this sermon. But I think this is one of them. As I was thinking about this, this confession of and battling sin, I couldn't help but think that there are many of you who are battling sin and feel as though you are losing. All of us have been in a season like that. Everyone in this room. The Puritans talked about indwelling sin, this, this sin that is so difficult for us to root out of ourselves. Some of you feel like sin has a stranglehold on you. But I wanted to remind you this morning of God's word in Galatians 5. It says that it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And do not submit yourself again to the yoke of slavery. Some of you are thinking, Daniel, I, I've heard that before, but how do I do that? I would love to be rid of this sin in my life. I hate it with everything that I am. But it has this power over me. 
And I would ask you, have you fasted and prayed? Have you sought God with desperation? I thought about Mark chapter 8 when, when the disciples are there healing people and they bring to, to, to them this little boy who had been um, possessed by demons and they are unable to cast the demons out. And Jesus returns and the people say, Jesus, we need your help. We, we asked your disciples, but they were unable to help us. And Jesus casts the demon out. And then when everyone leaves and they're by themselves again, the disciples ask Jesus, why weren't we able to cast that demon out? And Jesus' response to them was, some will only come out through prayer and fasting. Now, I'm not suggesting to you that you're possessed by a demon, but what I am suggesting is that some evil is more powerful than others. Some of your sin is more powerful than other. Some of your sin is more addictive than other kinds. Some of it is going to be harder to be rid of. But engage in the battle and use every tool that God has given you to engage that fight. And one of those is prayer and fasting. In verse 23, he, he moves to summarize what happened in light of what he had told the king. He, he felt his only option was to fast, implore God, and trust him to answer. So that's what they did. They fasted, implored God, and it says he listened to our entreaty. Later in the same chapter, it says that they arrived there safely with their children and with all their goods. Ultimately, what they wanted was to have safety along the way. God had called them to go. The trip was dangerous, and they needed protection. The thing that struck me about this situation was that there were two potential means of protection here. You see, Ezra, you see that Ezra's torn over the choice. He could have easily gone back to the king that was granting Ezra everything that he asked for, and he could have asked for soldiers. If this is the most powerful king in the world, which he was, surely he could have provided everything that they needed for a safe journey. Ezra, though, because of the word that the Lord had spoken through him, knew that that wasn't the right thing to do. God was calling his people in this specific area to put their trust in him. God wanted them to humble themselves, confess their need for him, and then have faith enough to set out on a journey with only the protection of God. Church, God is glorified in this. God is glorified when he calls us to do something that is outside of our natural ability, and the resource that he gives us is himself. He's glorified when we seek to do something that we know we cannot do for ourselves because we trust that he will give us the power to do it. That that is most ultimately displayed in our salvation. That we have found ourselves separated from God because of our sin and our disobedience. And God calls us to come to him and there's only one way which we can do that by expressing our absolute dependence upon Him through Jesus Christ. Earlier this week, I was trying to explain the gospel to my son. If you want to test your knowledge of the gospel, try to explain it to a three-year-old. 
using the most simple terms that I could try to find. I told him that he had done things that were wrong. That he had disobeyed his mom and dad, and in doing so, he had disobeyed God. And God said that because he had disobeyed, that his punishment was to die. I wish I had a picture of his face when I said that. (laughs) He said, I do? I said, but. And that is a glorious conjunction. But Jesus Christ died for us so that God could love us and he could forgive us. And he smiled. And I cried as I started to pray for him because I realized that for the first time he had heard good news. And now what is left for him to do is what many of you have done, which is display and confess his dependency upon that gift that Jesus Christ has given him. It's the ultimate display of our dependence upon God, and God is glorified when we do it. I I read the book of Ezra several times throughout the week, just trying to get a feel for what was going on and and get a feel for Ezra and what he's doing. And like I said, there's there's a chapter nine, he fasts again. And he's only in the the book really uh, three chapters. And he fasts in two of the three chapters. And when somebody fasts two out of three chapters, you start to think, this guy was a regular faster. He fasted regularly. What, What was his motivation in that? Why was he doing that? It reminded me of um, a quote from a letter that I had read before in one of John Piper's books. He's a pastor. And I, so I went looking for it, and I found it finally in one of his sermons. <clears throat> it's a letter from Dr. Carl Lundquist. It's just a publication letter that he put, put out um, towards the end of his ministry. Dr. Carl Lundquist was the president of Bethel College. And, and this, this letter was... Um, it was, it was about his pursuit of spiritual disciplines. And this particular one is about fasting. And let me read you this quote from the letter. It says, My own serious consideration of fasting as a spiritual discipline began as a result of visiting Dr. John Goon Kim in Seoul, Korea. Is it true, I asked him, that you have spent 40 days in fasting prior to the evangelism crusade in 1980? Yes, he responded, it is true. Dr. Kim was chairman of the crusade, expected to bring a million people to Yoido Plaza. But six months before the meeting, the police informed him they were revoking their permission for the crusade. Korea at that time was in political turmoil, and Seoul was under martial law. The officers decided that they could not take the risk of having so many people together in one place. So Dr. Kim and some associates went to a prayer mountain and there spent 40 days before God in prayer and fasting for the crusade. Then they returned and made their way to the police station. Oh, said the officer when he saw Dr. Kim, we have changed our mind and you can have your meeting. As I went back to the hotel, I reflected that I had never fasted like that. 
Perhaps I had never desired to work with God with the same intensity. His body is marked by many 40-day fasts during his long spiritual leadership of God's work in Asia. Also, however, I haven't seen the miracles Dr. Kim has. And the line from that that has been ringing in my mind for days now is this line that his body is marked by many 40-day fasts. What encourages a man to do that? What is his motivation? What must his faith be like? His body is marked by many 40-day fasts. Church, I, I want that to be said of me. Not because I think it would be some neat spiritual badge or it would be a respectable thing, but because if this is true of me, it means that I have desired God in such a way that I long for Him more than I long for anything. That I have desired His hand to move in such a way that it it pales everything else in comparison. That I have hungered for God in such a way that I have given up comfort from food. That I have, I have I've put aside physical pursuits because I long for more. I long for God. If this fast that we are about to start is going to be fruitful, then it has to be done in faith. We can't fast because it seems like the right thing to do or it's another box that we need to check before we launch this church. But we have to fast because we believe that God can move, that he has power, that he can provide all that we need in this venture. We must fast because we believe that if he doesn't move, we will fail. Listen to Matthew 7, 7 through 12. It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. What will you do? Do you believe that God delights in answering our prayers? Do you believe he has the power to act? Do you desire to see him move in this work that this church is engaging to plant a new church in Rollsville more than you desire food or entertainment? Those are the questions that we have to answer as a church before we move into a fast on Friday. I'm going to begin a time of prayer and response, and then uh, you are free to pray and uh, pray loudly. And then one of our elders will close us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the promises that you have given us that you delight to move 
in the prayers of your people. God, we are excited to see what you will do when we humble ourselves before you and give ourselves to the labor of prayer and fasting for the sake of your kingdom. God, I pray that you would give us faith to believe that you not only desire to move through our prayers, but that you have the power to do so. God, help us to grow in dependency upon you through this. And may our love for you explode as we realize that you are better than life itself. I pray these things in your name.